And we, uh, we so far have, have heard, in fact, over these past a few weeks, um, the first couple of words of Christ from the cross. The first word, a word of forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. The word of salvation, Jesus speaking to one of those being crucified with him. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And tonight, we're going to be considering Jesus speaking a word of relationship. Relationship. Ultimately, I guess, um, one of the profoundest things about life with Christ is the fact that he doesn't invite us solely into a, a method of living or some sort of structure. This is not a, a ten things we need to do to get saved kind of system. In fact, Jesus, when he invites us into walking his way, invites us uh, wonderfully and unexpectedly into a way of relationship. That Jesus Christ recognizes our utterly broken, cast adrift nature when we are in our sin. And he comes to us, not solely kind of launching out some sort of life raft for us and leaving us to our own devices, but in fact hauling us in. He makes that deep and lasting connection with us. And once Jesus gets a hold of us in that most beautiful way, he doesn't walk away. He doesn't let us go. He invites us into relationship. Tonight, I hope we can see from the scriptures that relationship is it's what we truly need, a relationship with Jesus. That's an interesting case to make, and perhaps an interesting case to make in the society in which we live, in which there are so many competing things for our attention, so many things that will tell us this is the way of satisfaction, this is the way of fulfillment, this is the way of hope. As we move into this season of Lent, a season that's um, oftentimes, in fact, all about um, stripping away some of the things that really don't have so much meaning in life and allowing our life to be refocused once again on what is deeply meaningful. We enter into the season, not just through pancakes, but through a, a little thing called Ash Wednesday. It's not something we, we practice so much in our kind of tradition of church, is it? But... Of course, those, uh, those ashes there, um, often mixed with oil and placed upon the forehead in the sign of the cross, has so much meaning. One of which being, ash speaking of the dust, that is from dust we have come and to dust we will return. In light of this, what will we do with Jesus? It was a movie, interestingly enough, 1973 I think, called Ash Wednesday. You'd think it'd be a kind of a biblical movie. I'm not entirely sure it was. Uh, I don't know that much about it, but I read that it starred Elizabeth Taylor, who played an aging woman who wanted to return to the heights of her beauty. In pursuit of that obsession, she boarded a plane to Switzerland where she undergoes extensive plastic surgery. The doctors promise her that afterwards she will look 20 years younger. Does anybody want to look 20 years younger? It's none of you guys, because none of you are even 20, are you? It's disgusting. Um, 20 years younger, you'd not even exist, but uh, anyhow. Um, following the surgery, with her bruised face wrapped in bandages, Taylor dons dark sunglasses and decides to go for a walk. Slowly, in great pain, she strolled the streets of Geneva. Seeking to find a place to stop for a rest, she entered an old stone church. Hidden in the back row of the sanctuary, 
She is like a new woman waiting to emerge from a gauze cocoon until she is approached by an elderly priest making his way through the congregation. It is Ash Wednesday. And carrying his bowl of cinders, he pauses in front of Taylor and intones the ancient litany, Remember, you are dust, and to dust you will return. That's a bit of a reality check, isn't it? 20 years younger, you could go 30, 40, 50 years younger. Remember, you are dust, and to dust you will return, and prompts this, uh, uh, the rest of, of the movie. Any improvement, no matter how striking, is simply temporary. What are we longing for in life? Longing for that kind of improvement? I don't know. Maybe you're longing for some improvement in your bank balance. <laughs> some kind of meaningful uh, chuckling around the room. There's a story that's told of a man who, while walking on a beach, found a used magic lamp. He rubbed the lamp and the genie appeared, as they do in these things, inviting him to make a wish. Well, the man pondered for a moment and then had a great idea. He requested a copy of the stock pages from the local newspaper dated exactly one year into the future. With a puff of smoke, the genie disappeared and in his place was a copy of those stock pages one year in the future, gleefully. The man sat down to peruse his trophy. Now he could invest all his money with certainty, knowing which stocks would rise. And guess whose name was at the top of the list? Well, it was his own. Confused, he wondered why. Well, it's because above the stock listings were the listings of obituaries. And there the stock market gains became less important, looking at life from an eternal perspective. You know, they're daft stories, I guess. Not really kind of speaking to the, the substance of our lives, but the truth of the matter is, we look this way and that for what will bring us satisfaction in life. And not just us, but those around us, no doubt. Maybe friends, maybe family, maybe those that you're going to be working or studying with tomorrow. None of these things truly Satisfy. What do we really need? What do we really need? In John chapter 19, the scene of the cross is described for us. And there in verse 25, um, John describes the scene. It's bleak. And we can imagine that many, perhaps most of the crowds have dissipated and gone about their way having mocked and hurled abuse at Jesus, now simply they're there to die and simply perhaps the executioners and a few hangers-on remain. But John recounts how there are a few who have stayed with Jesus. And in verse 25 he says, Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. We don't know a huge amount about some of those names, but one thing is quite striking immediately, isn't it? That it's just ladies, just women who had remained. And in Mark chapter 14 and verse 27, we find some of the reason. You see, all of those disciples, the men who had been close to Jesus, had largely scattered. 
scattered when the going got tough, scattered when their lives also seemed in peril, as well as the one they called teacher. And only the women have gone to the cross for the most part. Mary, the mother of Jesus, the one known as Mary of Nazareth, there with her son through thick and thin. Salome, the Gospels recount, is there also. It's probably Jesus' mother's sister, also possibly then the mother of James and John, two of the disciples. Mary then also the wife of Clopas. And some uh, scholars uh, wonder whether Clopas is another spelling for Cleopas. And we, we looked at the, uh, the two disciples walking along the road to Emmaus with Jesus. Cleopas and one other, probably his wife. Is this the lady herself here at the cross? She is clearly somebody who is intimately involved with the circle of Jesus. Looking upon him, not willing to leave him and then Mary Magdalene as well that lady once delivered of seven demons moved by God moved powerfully and profoundly from darkness to light from the things of hate and horror to the things of love and life soon wonderfully to be the first to see Jesus risen from the grave And as John tells the story of this gathering of ladies around the cross, there's one person he doesn't note, and um, it's because it's himself. But as he continues the story, he comes into the the narrative. You see in verses 26, 27, uh, the story continues that Jesus saw his mother and John, called the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby. Jesus, he says this to his mother, woman, Behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. In just a moment, a simple statement, a few short words, everything has changed for these two. There they are close to the cross, close to the Christ and to be close to him is to allow for such a thing that their entire life and everything about it might be reordered according to his will, according to the love of Jesus. We saw already just as we listed those ladies around the cross how there were quite possibly, quite probably family connections between them. But family was a pretty fraught thing for Jesus and his circle. Yes, there was Mary, the mother of Jesus, but none of his siblings were there. At this point, it seems probable, certainly knowing what we do from earlier in the Gospels, that they still didn't believe in Jesus and who he said he was or in his mission and his purpose in the world. Mark chapter 3 tells us a story of how uh, the the brothers of Jesus come on one occasion to, to take him home. Why? Because they thought he had lost his mind. It's a tragedy, isn't it? 
It's an injury. It's an insult. It's something so uh, fractured in their relationship that seeing Jesus and all of the, the wondrous things that were coming out of his mouth and seeing him heal and restore and, and bring the kingdom of God into, into, into this place, this earth, like nobody ever before or since, they thought he was mad. And still at the cross, as the life ebbs from his body, they couldn't bring themselves to be there. Family was a difficult thing. And Jesus looks at the disciple whom he loved. And you know, we've, saw, we've seen if Salome was Jesus' mother's sister, also the mother of, of John, then there is that family connection. In that sense, this is perhaps not such a strange thing that, that Mary might be then entrusted to, to John from the extended family. But something more significant is happening. If John's mother was there, is it not strange that Jesus should say, now Mary is your mother? What is he doing? What is he doing? Well, Jesus has given a really strong clue for us. In fact, he's given us an understanding of this already. And in Matthew chapter 12, way, way back in the story for Jesus and his disciples, uh, Jesus tells us what's going on here. I'm going to read to you just from verse uh, 46, uh, just a few verses. Matthew 12, verse 46, it says that Jesus, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers, his natural family, stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the one who told him, to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I don't know, do you ever put yourself in the, in the shoes of the people in the Bible stories? Do you ever try and do that? Ladies, perhaps, would you imagine what it would be like to be Mary in that scenario? Gents, we can be the brothers of Jesus, perhaps. This, this Mary who um, visited by the angel those years ago, and her entire life, her entire world had been turned upside down, and, and yet she humbly submitted herself and, and said, as you've said, let it be to me. Humbly surrendering herself as the Lord's servant. Her entire life turned upside down. And yet when she comes then with her other boys to speak to Jesus, all of a sudden she gets this uh, wake-up call. The shock of reality. That actually there isn't a special place for her in God's family over and above all of the others. Hmm. I imagine actually... Mary dealt with that pretty well. This lady for whom humility had been a hallmark of her life, this lady who simply had to humble herself right from the get-go that Jesus was going to turn everything upside down, is then at the end of our story the mother who is there at the foot of the cross. And so in this moment, as Jesus says, knowing his mother is outside, as he says, knowing she's going to hear these words, whoever does the will of the one who sent me, is my mother. Well, you've got a choice, don't you? Can you be offended? You certainly could. Can you embrace this? It seems to me that if Mary is then going to be at the cross, she was one who embraced it. 
I think the brothers had longer, further to go rather. I hesitate to say it, but sometimes blokes can be a little bit stubborn. I'm not going to ask for any amens at that point. It's a new family. I know aren't families need it. Isn't God's perfect plan for the new family, his church, so need it? Oh, we live in an age of pretty fractured society, don't we? And you know, at the moment you open the newspaper every day or turn on the news every day and it's a it's knife crime predominantly, isn't it, at the moment? That's what's um, really capturing our attention. Although, truth be told, it could be one of a number of ills of society that could be plaguing our minds. But knife crime is one. I don't know whether recently you ever uh, found yourself outside the Anglican Cathedral in Liverpool. Did you see? And there, there was this vast sculpture crafted out of knives. Each one speaking of somebody who had been the victim of knife crime. And that sculpture now is moving around our country, going from cathedral to cathedral, I think. And it was vast. It was massive. Dominant. Speaking of the scourge of such a thing in our society. But that, as so many other things, symptomatic of ruptures and breakdowns and problems in our society just this week I was uh, chatting with a, a minister in Liverpool. He, he pastors a victory outreach over there and, and they have an incredible ministry and a recovery home for people who want to get out of addiction. But there uh, we were in, in Aintree and we were talking about Birkenhead as well and speaking about uh, family breakdown and how we saw such similar uh, parallels and similar circumstances and the absence of so many fathers just simply disappearing from the scene and how that is such a plague and a scourge on our society and how uh, so many families are struggling, wrestling to stay afloat. All of these things, these symptoms that flow from it and how oftentimes as well within our society we hear of uh, what's often called a, an epidemic of loneliness. I don't know, it's, it kind of almost medicalizes it, doesn't it? But truth be told, an epidemic of loneliness, it is, it's real people, real stories, real individuals lost and alone without any connection, without anyone to call family. Isn't God's perfect plan for his family, the church, more needed than ever? Jesus Christ upon the cross it profoundly institutes something. It binds people together in an unbreakable relationship of love in a way that he's already taught us is something that speaks of our oneness under Father God. Jesus brings us into relationship. He brings us into family when he speaks to us from the cross. Don't ever fool yourself into thinking that you can hear the message of salvation from Jesus to you and then spin yourself off into some isolated Christianity of your own making. Jesus doesn't speak that Christianity. He doesn't speak that faith. He speaks a faith that unites us as one under one Lord and one God. He invites us to know God as our Father and to know the joys of what it is to be a family.
doesn't mean it's easy. Hey, being in relationship with Jesus isn't easy. This is the Jesus who, when he speaks about family, actually says, unless, unless a disciple, one who follows me, actually hates everything that has come before uh, in, in, and prefer the way of following me, then they have no part of me. Well, that's not an easy thing to hear, is it? This is the Jesus when speaking of the, the, the profound nature of the new covenant in his blood and the, the way that we can enter into new life through his brokenness says that people who want to follow him must eat off his flesh and drink of his blood. Well, there's a message that doesn't really go down well nowadays, does it? It's not easy to be in relationship with Jesus. He speaks a challenge. He speaks a mystery, but he invites us into it nonetheless. No matter how many hard things Jesus said, would say, does say, will say, the Bible teaches us that people wanted to be with him, didn't they? Because he's beautiful. Because he's majestic. Why are you here this evening? Is it perhaps because you want to be with Jesus? Is it because he's beautiful? Is it because he's majestic? What does relationship look with God, with God look like? Well, Jesus and his time here on earth in particular showed us that really the touchstone of his life, the, the center of it all was his connection, his relationship with his father. Time after time after time, Jesus would take himself aside to pray, to be in conversation and communion with his father. Three of these seven things that Jesus, these seven words that Jesus spoke from the cross are prayers. Before he was to be arrested, Jesus invested himself deeply in prayer through the night. And it wasn't for the first time. And Jesus shows us how integral it is for us to, to, to allow this relationship with God to flourish. It's through prayer. Even when he teaches us how we should pray, he begins this prayer with our Father, it's a prayer of relationship. It's a prayer of family. I don't know about you, we, we repeat the prayer often, don't we? Time and time and time again. I get the privilege of um, speaking week by week with some, uh, some elderly folks, uh, and they're lovely. Um, but one or two of them, they are significantly elderly. And, uh, and their engagement with the world, shall we say, is not quite what it once was. Am I putting that delicately enough? I think I am. And, uh, and, uh, and, and some of the stuff that we talk about and even some of the hymns that we sing, it kind of, you can see it's just, you know, it's going by them. And, and uh, they, they get me to come and talk with these folks after lunchtime, which is the graveyard shift as well, isn't it? So everyone's falling asleep at the best of times. But, um, I, you know, I, I plough on manfully. I'm well used to putting people to sleep when I preach. So um, we, we do this. But right at the end of when we gather, we always finish off with praying the Lord's prayer and I tell you something really quite powerful happens every week when we do so because we say let's pray as Jesus taught us and then maybe 20 um, senior saints all click in in that moment and word perfect and let me tell you with real meaning pronounce this prayer our father I don't know how many dozens, scores, hundreds of times that folks who are in their 80s, 90s, or hundreds even have uh, said those words. But we would do well not to get too familiar with them. They're powerful. 
They're profound. The very fact that you are invited to be in relationship with God and call him your father, it's a wonder. There was a German scholar in recent years who did a bit of a study into this. He researched through New Testament literature and and discovered, in fact, in the entire history of Judaism, in all the existing books of the Old Testament and all the existing books of extra-biblical Jewish writings, right from the beginning, all the way until the 10th century AD, in fact, there is not a single reference to a Jewish person addressing God directly in the first person as Father. No one did it. No one. It wasn't a part of their experience. There are all sorts of appropriate forms of address that should be used by Jewish believers in the Old Testament and all the proper phrases of respect and they were dutifully memorized and they're precious in their own way but Father was not among them. The first Jewish rabbi to call God Father was Jesus. And then he says to you and to me, you can do this too. You can do this too. It's powerful and profound that Jesus invites us into the exact same relationship of son to father that he has enjoyed eternally. He gives us the right and the privilege to come into the presence of the majesty of God and address him as Father because he is our Father through Jesus Christ. We are adopted through Jesus into his family. The Bible teaches us in Romans 8, therefore we are made co-heirs with Jesus, with the only begotten Son. We're invited into something that deep, that rich, that profound. And this is what Jesus is speaking from the cross when he says, Here's the new family. Here's the new family. Jesus enables us to call God Father. And he makes us his brothers and sisters, part of the family, as Hebrews 2.11 puts it. For he who sanctifies, that is Jesus who makes holy. And those who are sanctified, that is you and me in Jesus, we all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. All families can be tricky things, can't they? Strange old things. Sometimes we can infuriate one another. Sometimes we can shame one another or be ashamed of one another. Sometimes we can uh, you know, ascend to incredible heights and follow it with desperate lows. But Jesus, knowing all of our brokenness, knowing all of our foibles and failures and knowing all of our inadequacy to enter into his family, he says, I'm not ashamed to call you my brother, my sister. It's the word of Jesus over you today. He's speaking to you from that cross and from his risen glory, saying, I'm not ashamed of you. Welcome in. Oh, it's an imperfect family. That's true enough. And even the church here and now is an imperfect family. We can't say simply that Jesus speaks over us and all of a sudden we become perfect at being family. Well, I can't say that. At least I don't know about the rest of you. I enjoy the way Mother Teresa put it on one occasion. She said, she said what can you do to promote world peace in response to a, a questioner? She said, go home and love your family. That's pretty down to earth, isn't it? I like that. I like that in every sense of it, but I like that in the sense of the church particularly. You want the church to flourish? You want it to thrive? 
You want to see your brothers and sisters in Christ come alive with all of the possibility of what it is to know God as their father and to walk in the wisdom and the ways of Jesus? Then love them. And not just on a one-off occasion, but always and evermore, over and over and over again. Do you know, that's what the testimonies that people have been sharing about our transformed communities are about. It doesn't get possible to see God's kingdom come. It doesn't get possible to have opportunity to share the gospel without first realizing that we are one in God and we love one another as sent ones on a shared mission. This is what you're being called to. To be extended families of missionary servants, people who are upwardly moved towards God by Jesus Christ, inwardly loving one another and outwardly prompted and, and sent by the Holy Spirit so we might see change within our world. You can't do this alone. You weren't made to. Again, the writer to the Hebrews, and we're going to draw to a close with this. He tells us why we should gather, why we should invest in one another, why we should center our lives around this Jesus in worship. And in Hebrews chapter 10, we could read these words. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Ah, that bears reading again. You should do when you go home. <laughs> Give yourself full confidence in the faith that you have in Jesus. We continue. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir, one another, stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's Jesus on a cross. And the writer to the Hebrews speaks in a, well, it's graphic but it's powerful. Jesus on the cross, he is very literally opening up a new and living way for us through his flesh. Those who were there, those ladies and John looking upon him, they would have seen the literal truth of this. His body is being broken. And what does that new and living way look like? It's a full assurance of salvation. Washed clean from an evil conscience. It's being uh, given this access into the family of God, this adoption, this fatherhood. But it is also being welcomed into the family of of God and so Jesus speaks mother here is your son sorry woman here is your son here is your mother and from that day they were together as the family of God I don't know how many times 
how many times it is we have to hear the voice of Jesus telling us that we must prize genuine community with one another. We must prize what it is to truly, really, intimately, powerfully be the family of God. Oh, I am thankful that for Mary, that woman of great humility, and John, that man of great love, they just had to hear the words of Jesus once. And they established the family of God. Don't know what it is that we're perhaps lacking in. Humility, love, I don't know which. But over and over again, the call of God comes to us to say, when will you love one another like I've called you to love one another? When will you invest in one another as though you really and truly are my family here on earth? Please, God. Please, God, that we won't keep on hearing his call and then going about our business as usual. Please, God, that we begin to love one another that truly says we've understood, we've heard, we've embraced, and we want to show that love in the world.